Welcome back to another Impact for Night Impact Education Leadership. This is episode 175. I'm your host, ID3 for Isaac Drone Thirst. Tonight's planners are Carl Barry and Buddy Thornton, Positive Change Agent Pro. Buddy Thornton, Positive Change Agent Pro, please say hello to the people again. Good evening, everybody. I am thrilled to be here. Tonight's topic is just one that is just going to rock your socks. And uh, let's get this party started, baby. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And Carl Barry, please say hello to the people and welcome, sir. Hello, everybody. My name's Carl Barry. I'm with the Community Care Resource Council, and I'm happy to be here and excited to hear what God has to offer. Absolutely. We thank you for this, sir. Well, tonight's topic is five essential steps for building a trauma-informed school. Let me go around the panel real quick. When you first got this topic for the night, and with everything going on in the news, in the world, in the community at large, what was the first thoughts that entered your mind? Buddy Thornton, what was the first thoughts in your mind, sir? Well, I believe that because we're emerging out of COVID, at least to a fashion, that trauma is very difficult to define, but it exists everywhere. There's no such thing as somebody who's not in the same boat. And because of that one simple fact, there's a lot of people who don't understand that or don't want to accept that or acknowledge that. And I think that tonight's uh, conversation is going to expose that and give them some uh, coping skills. Wow, wow. With COVID-19, COVID-19 did one thing. It put everyone in the same boat. And then it seems like people started throwing people overboard. People started throwing people overboard because they didn't want them in the same boat with them because for whatever reason, I don't know. Let me go to Carberry. First of all, we want to thank you for coming to the podcast, sir. And uh, what was your thoughts when you got this topic for the night? Because I, I, can, I can hear your excitement. Well, I thought of first and foremost about mindfulness and I thought about the trauma I just did a program with the Department of Health and Human Services, and they were dealing with uh, anxiety, depression, all of which are rooted and based in trauma. They just now decided that trauma is also a base uh, cause of even drug addiction. A lot of people that do drugs don't get addicted, but those that experience trauma as you do. So I'm very excited about dealing consciously with stress, disturbing thoughts and unpleasant emotions and see how that affects the lives and the internal being of mankind. Wow, wow. Okay, before we get into this, this is so good. And I feel like we need to build the credibility of our our guests, panelists, and, and our panelists tonight. So let me go around the horn real quick and let's start with this. Buddy Thornton, let's let the listeners audience know what you're doing currently, sir. I know it's a lot, but let us know. Well, I'm completing book five on my Slippery Slope series, which is a compilation of 12 books that are all aimed at pro-social behavior and coping skills and social outcomes and the potential for where we can go from where we are right now. And I, uh, this week, uh, later this week, I'm in a, a day-long conference uh, dealing with the art of connection and how to put people together in the right place at the right time. And in a couple of weeks, I have another uh, uh, half-day conference that I'm doing that is uh, focused on uh, helping people escape bad habits by creating new habits and uh, 
you know, it's all about pro-social behavior in my life and in my world, and I think tonight's topic uh, hit right in the ballpark. Awesome, awesomeness. And, Carberry, what you got going on currently, sir? Well, Community Care Resource Council loves and prides itself on helping people find help. What we do is we connect people and organizations to the government, faith, and health care resources that are best qualified to meet their needs. It's been said that people die for lack of knowledge, and what we try to do is to impact both sides of the community. We try to let the, the people in the community searching for help become aware of the, who the resources providers are, and then we try to introduce the resource providers to the community by means of marketing, which we do quite extensively. And by the way, that's for the resource provider at no charge. So we believe in uh, helping people find help. In fact, our topic is when you call CCRC, help is on the way. Wow, wow. Listen, I wanna open the panel, I wanna open the panel because after COVID-19 happened, to us, there was so, the, the sense of mistrust, I believe, catapulted, not only in the United States, but globally. And people begin to get more cold. People begin to get more desensitized to empathetic situations in the home, in the schools, in the communities, even in states, cities, states, countries. The panel was open and I wanna ask, I wanna talk about what I wanna ask in a question about solutions and, and how important is community, how important is it for community leaders to recognize that those people that support them and, and the and their voice right how important is it for them to be aware of the fears and the mistrust that the people have toward those agencies that both of you guys represent in the community and, and what are some of the ways that those community leaders are, are gaining back that trust to the people. And, and you can include churches with that. Any institution, religious institution, educational institution, governmental institution, what are those leaders doing, in your opinion, to gain back that trust? The panel's open. Who want to take that first? Well, I think uh, one of the things that people have to realize is that <clears throat> Uh, fear triggers uh, our lower amygdala response and it blocks our ability to do critical thinking. And I think uh, leadership failed to recognize that they need to, to anchor on reducing or eliminating fear from the equation instead of the bickering and the arguing about what was going to be the way to handle the COVID response. And now <clears throat> people have seen ineffective leadership so now they're looking for other solutions you know society moves at, at a general pace they it always will unless something jumps up and bites it you know breaks the rails and covid broke the rails so as the momentum across society slowed down it didn't come to a grinding halt but it slowed down 
the people who didn't have strong support systems really needed more than strong leadership to hold them in the game, to keep them moving forward ever so slightly, as long as there was some momentum they had hope. When a lot of people started losing hope, they started saying, okay, who's going to step up to the plate? Now, people like uh, my panel mates organization, they're completely focused and geared on stepping up to the plate. There, there are organizations like that. It's like Hunger Buster with Latane Phillips. There's other, other organizations that understood that the most important thing that you could give people was a way to focus around or beyond fear. Because you cannot escape a barrier. You cannot escape a trap. You have to work your way out it or through it. So it, that's the most important thing. And right now, we have a few leaders, not many, but we have a few leaders who are starting to recognize that the most important thing to do is to find any possible way to eliminate divisive wording, divisive expressions, divisive actions, and let people start helping co-create a solution moving forward and let organizations that are geared specifically for supporting those people who are hurting, let them do their job. Get out of their way, give them whatever resources they might need to a point, but get out of the way and then support them. Even if you don't agree with everything they're doing, the idea that you are supporting them allows the people who are suffering to see hope at the end of that light, and that's what they need. Oh, that's good. That's good. Who's next? Who's next? Buddy, I can't help but echo what you had to say. An acronym I'm familiar with for fear calls it false events appearing real. And simplicity is the key. I did two events with the federal government in 2021. The first one was called Sheltered Minds because COVID broke our sensitivity to relationships. And people stopped doing the most fundamental of things, getting out in the sunshine, drinking plenty of water, getting exercise. Some people, like me, confined themselves to their office, to the recliner, to the kitchen, and to bed, not realizing the damage uh, lack of humor interaction was causing. From there, we did a program called covid facts, fiction, and future in which I told the federal government, you guys can't solve problems with words like debunking, with words like correcting. And so I told them, you go ahead and do what you're going to do, but I'm going to do it the way I do it. And fortunately, they've been cooperating to do things because the things people want to know and want to hear is, as you said, uh, Isaiah, buddy, it's the things that they can do to trust. Well, we live in a world built on distrust. Whoever is right or left has got the microphone. They're arguing a point, usually for somebody else's benefit, usually because of monetary influence. And so I had a lot of people that was telling my public, don't get the vaccine. 
uh, and don't take the message because the FDA is corrupt. The CDC is corrupt. Look what they did in Tuskegee. Look what they did this, here, that, and the other. And they're saying, by the way, what you do is buy our vitamins. Don't take the vaccine. Use our vitamins. Well, when you do that, what you're going to find is the warring factions generally have an own undercover product or posture that they're trying to sell. And what we have to do as a mindful uh, public and population is inspect what you expect and inspect and compare all of the information. And I always suggest you do it with the word maybe. Maybe to me is the most powerful word in living life. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's left. Maybe it's right. But as long as I'm stuck on maybe, then I'm able to grasp, evaluate, and change if it's justifiable from my investigation. So for me, uh, I appreciate you acknowledging, buddy, that's what we do. But what we do is just promote open-mindedness. We promote uh, both sides of a topic. In fact, I actually have speakers speak that I don't like and I disagree with what they say. But I believe they need to be heard so that man can make his own decision. That's my take. I can tell already tonight It's going to be dangerous And please listen on us You have to share this Not for the podcast But for our communities For our homes For our, our mental stability We got so many types of mental illness Out now that's been recognized I think they took away the, the mental hospitals Back in the 80s under the Reagan administration Not sure but with those organizations gone now, you, who's going to deal with the disorders, the anxiety disorders? Who's going to deal with the depression and the other mood disorders? Who's going to deal with the PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorders, and the substance abuse, and even the eating disorders? COVID-19 came upon us, and those this. Those disorders, those challenges hit us like a brick wall. And the question I want to ask you, listening audience, is have you, have you asked yourself, am I okay? Am I okay? Because the world was traumatized. We're still traumatized. We lost so much. It was like scraping concrete, scraping dust from the ground underneath our fingernails. That's how we had to fight to survive. The panel was open. I, I want to ask the question, are you okay? And how do you know you're okay? And how is self-care, how is self-care tied to mental health, mental wellness, have you asked yourself? Like Go ahead. Talk about it. Talk about it. Let's talk about I'd it. I'd like to respond to that. Uh, the first thing I suggest and the first thing we do to have the conversations on all of the subjects you address, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and so forth, is the first thing you have to do is break it down to the least 
common denominator. So you ask the audience, what do they experience? The question I'm going to ask the audience, do you experience any kind of stress? Because stress is the predecessor of PTSD, of mental health, anxiety, worry, depression, schizophrenia. It begins with stress. And guess what? There are so many stigmas associated with all of those different relations that stress, I can accept I'm stressed, but I'm not going to tell you I'm depressed. I'm not going to tell you uh, I, I got a mental health disorder. Uh, what goes on in this house stays in this house. So the first thing we do is break it down to the lowest level. We talk about stress and what is stressing you? Because mental health is one of the definitions is being uncomfortable with whatever your circumstance is. And so it's important that we understand and be able to admit to ourselves that we have stressors. And then we got to look at what are those things that deal with stressors. One of the basic and fundamental things is what do you eat? Are you eating healthy foods or are you eating unhealthy foods? Are you drinking enough water? Are you getting uh, 30 minutes of sunlight twice a day? Uh, all of this fundamental stuff is what has to help us understand because that's what COVID took away from us. And then add to that, what about the single parent that was a first responder? What did they bring home to their children that had been locked up in the house all day and then this stressed out nurse comes home from the hospital after watching 13 people die that day and what kind of stress did she create in the house? In fact, uh, pornography increased by 38, 138% the first month of COVID uh, lockdown. And so we've got to look at all of the things that impact us, all of the outlets that we create that are unhealthy, and then try to look at what are the things that are the stressors that we have to manage and eliminate or at least uh, address in our lives. So for me, the first thing I'm going to do, 30% of females under 20 in the United States 2023 February 3rd have considered suicide and we've got to ask ourselves well, where do these statistics come from number one but number two what generates these statistics and I personally believe that stress is the place and the starting point not the finish line but it's where we all begin and the writing is on the wall all you got to do is walk in one of these schools especially those schools one of those public schools in those <laughs> demographic areas you know what I'm talking about please we're going to keep it real tonight and you walk through those hallways you walk up you walk in those staircases and you walk in those bathrooms and those bathroom stalls and you're going to see the writing on the wall what Mr. Barry just said but he threw in the same question are we okay? Yeah. No, obviously. I think the overwhelming response to that has to be no, but people have to be willing to admit that, like my esteemed panel mate said. But here's the situation in a, in a nutshell. 
you and I both were in the military, uh, and so we understand that there's always an advance guard. There's always a line that you have to draw in the sand, and you have to decide how much you were going to de- define that line, how much you're going to defend it, and what are you going to do when it, if you are threatened by getting overrun. And COVID completely shifted that line in the sand. Stress is a killer. But throughout human history, stress has been the motivator for all change. Without stress, people are going to stay right where they are. They're not going to care if anything else happens because they're not stressed enough to make any changes. They're happy. They get very content. And so it's it's a double-edged sword. And the heroes, the people who are the human service counselors, the people who are the mental health counselors, the people who have to get in the mud and fight the battle right at that defined line, those are the heroes who understand that you have to understand what kind of stress you're faced with. Are you faced with the stress of knowing that if you can innovate, if you can come up with a new process, if you can actually make a difference in somebody's life, you have actually changed the narrative for the better? Are you faced with debilitating stress, the kind of stress that makes somebody shrink into the corner and they can't move and they can't even respond to save themselves? So there's different types of stress and the hero in us, the people who are in that battle, they have to really, really define how to identify the right type of stress. And then they have to apply the right type of stress to the people who can make a difference. And they have to remove the stress from those who cannot help themselves. So, no, we're not okay because we don't have enough heroes. Listen, let's talk about schools because this is I'm, I'm not upset. I'm not upset. I'm I'm glad that we're talking about this. We have to talk about this. I I, I love I love my, my my children so so much, and I, and they are the future, and they're next. And so we have to set up a we have to set the stage. We have to set the stage up for our our kids because they're next. Our children, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren. Our great great grandchildren, if you got that in your household, they're next. So a trauma a trauma informed school is an educational institution that seeks to understand and mitigate the adverse effects of trauma experienced by our scholars. These schools ensure that students receive the necessary behavior and mental health services. Because life is like a pencil sharpener. Life is like a pencil sharpener. If you think about it, think about this. Though the pencil sharpener is crushing the pencil, it's crushing it. It's painful at first, but the end result is the pencil is not only sharp, it's also smooth when it's finished. To understand this concept, you must be aware of your environment and be willing to enhance your self-regulation and your mindfulness to become your best self. The panelists tonight, we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about mindfulness in the community. We're gonna talk about building an appropriate uh, community with those necessary building blocks for developments, for developmental um, sources, resources for students for at different levels. 
to help them understand how vital it is to know who, what, when, and where, and why they should engage in community involvement and get connected with their community in a more balanced way. And with that being said, I want to go first to, I want to open the panel up real quick again. Because are community services doing enough? And and I want you to be transparent. Is Are there enough services that are going out there to uh, our residents? And is it is it equal? Is it diverse? Is it is it inclusive to to everyone, no matter how much money they make? The panel is open. What's your thoughts? No, I don't believe anything is equal at this point in time. I've always lived in a very diverse neighborhood uh, in Phoenix. We've been here for well over thirty years, and you can see a palpable difference between one demographic and another demographic and how much attention is paid to the pain that one group is suffering compared to the pain of another. And even even if you look at it that way, it's not about the resources. The problem is this is a multi-generational problem. It's a problem that extends from 20 and 30 years ago when there wasn't enough foresight to say, you know, the demographics is changing in our country. We need to start, you know, supporting and we need to start bringing people who can look in the mirror and their clients can say, hey, this person looks like me. I can trust them in the first five seconds as opposed to I don't want to expose myself because these people don't look like me or they don't talk like me. And so because there was no foresight when we got to the point where it was a global crisis, now everybody got into their silos and they decided, you know what, I'm going to take care of what I can take care of and I'm going to let the rest. Well, God can sort that out. And that attitude is incorrect in one way and it's correct in another. You can only help as many people as you can functionally help. However, there's no excuse for you not mentoring someone else who might be a positive affect for another group. So, no, there's no equity. There's no equality in the response. People are really, really gyrating uh, at the best level they can. You know, empathy is setting in in some groups, and it's uh, uh, completely gone in others. And the only way we can do anything about that is to face the fact that this is where we are now, and we need to ignore what happened in the past and say, how do we fix right now, and how do we plan on the future? Because, you know, we are the people who are responsible for caretaking this planet for our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, which I have all of, and I don't want to leave them in a worse place than I was when I was their age. So, yeah, we need to we need to fix the problem. We need to fix it now. And, and, and we love, I love, you know, I love your, your children, <laughs> and they know that as well. History, because what you said makes me pivot to ponder this question do you know your history because those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it and we do not want to repeat historically what has transpired in the past in this nation and that's deep as I think about that as I ponder on that we don't want to repeat it 
we want to we want to take what we learn from history from the past and we want to build we want to learn from our mistakes because we made a lot of mistakes coming in to this country there were there was a lot of growth there was a lot of mistakes that was made some of the mistakes was ugly some of the mistakes was beautiful but they were mistakes they were growing pains and i'm and i'm talking about this not as a black man but as an overseer they were growing pains right and so it goes back life it goes back to that life 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 is like a pencil sharpener you get life will cut you to grow you <laughs> life will do a number on you it will crush you to make you wise it will crush you like an olive oil to make you anointed so that when you speak you ooze wisdom you ooze grace because it was given to you, but you paid the price. Let me go to Carl Berry really quick because I want to pull from your wisdom and ask the question from your standpoint as you have recognized situations going on in the communities for years. What have you noticed that mainly triggers those emotional breakdowns? I know you got a lot of examples that trigger those emotional breakdowns, uh, breakdowns from the people that you've worked with during your community involvement. And what would you tell those people, the new people coming into the line of work that you're doing and then the seasoned people that's been doing it for years, how do you maintain your discernment and your awareness during community events, if that makes sense? Well... First of all, I am a 50-year-old experienced salesman. In other words, I'm older than 50. I was in sales for 50 years. And we first had to identify if I got a driver personality, expressive personality, an analytical personality, or an ambiguous personality. Then I've got to also look at that pencil and realize it starts off short, it gets to be smooth, but if it gets too smooth, it becomes dull and it has to be resharpened again. So for me, I like the way Buddy responded to my comments on stress and I totally agree with it, but I'm going right back to maybe because I really believe that it takes a little bit of both sides of a conversation to keep the conversation balanced and to help you understand. There were things I said 20 years ago I don't even believe myself today. And what I'm getting at is we have to, a lot of times, we have to deal with history. And in dealing with history, there's some things that we don't want to bring up. And there's some things that we must bring up. I've got a lady in one of my counseling groups uh, had a big argument with her grandson. Her 17-year-old grandson did not want to go to the Holocaust Museum. He fought it, and she insisted. And then he came home, and he said, I can't believe that even happened. 
And I use that in my analogy because I've got people in organizations I belong with where they don't want to acknowledge uh, the horrors of, of some of black history. We want to talk about the good things, but we don't want to talk about the bad things. And the talking about the bad things can actually be divisive. Well, it's divisive if you don't address all of the history simply because you can either be divisive by talking about the horrors of slavery and racial injustice, or you can be divisive about denying me my heritage. I didn't learn about myself as a young child going to school, and now that I'm a grown man and I want to learn more about my history, you want to put a muzzle on that because it's going to be divisive and it's going to divide us. Well, yeah, it will, but I'm going back to maybe. Maybe it'll divide you. Maybe it'll inform you. Maybe the guy that thinks it's divisive needs to hear it. And maybe the guy that wants to hear it doesn't need to hear it. But who makes that decision? And I always believe nothing happens in God's world by accident. So I stand up and I believe the solution for me, uh, Isaiah, is having uh, transparent, honest conversations. Too often, I think we are people-pleasing. We don't want to upset the apple cart. I don't want to be politically uh, inappropriate. I don't want to have a hard conversation. But crucial conversations is where we break down the silos that Buddy talks about. If we don't break down these silos, then we're all going to have the same conversations with each other within the silo. Meanwhile, we're not talking to the guy the next acre over, and therefore we're unaware. So for me, there are two words that are imperative. One is sensitivity. I've got to be sensitive to all points of view. Number two is awareness. And awareness is worthless unless we are involved with each other. I, when we work, when I said we work with faith, we work with all faith, regardless of religion. I just left 10,000 people at the uh, Hindu temple in Dallas this weekend, and we found out that uh, they had been enslaved for 200 years under British rule, but prior to that, they were enslaved by the Mongols, that they believe in doing the right thing, they believe in love all people, they believe in the same tenets that Jews and Muslims and other Christians believe, and they were Hindu. Most religions really all believe in the same wholesale humanitarian principles. But as long as we're kept in silos, kept from each other, kept from becoming involved or interactive, excuse me, we cannot and will not learn to overcome. It comes from tough conversations it comes from, and you can expect that I'm one that sees it all the time, it comes from standing up and talking about things that people really would rather not address. But if we don't address it, it's just a slower pace. It's going to happen. We're going to get there. But it happens more rapidly if we talk to one another, regardless of how we believe. And the people we talk to aren't the ones 
that think and look just like us, they are the ones that we think are not for us. We've got to talk to the people we think we disagree with and then discover that we're not so different after all. You know, when you talk, you put fuel in my gas tank. Now, this is Black History Month. And like you said, they try to sleep, uh, people try to sweep slavery up under the rug. As you were talking, it reminded me of this book that I, I, I looked at and read called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, this book started the Civil War. When they read the book, they read about all the horrors that slaves went through during slavery. And the book was popular in the North. I, I forgot who wrote the book, but it was popular in the North. And when they read the book, people got teed off. People got pissed off. And they said, you know, that's not only is that inhumane, but I wouldn't even treat I wouldn't even treat my dog like this. I would treat my pet animal better than this. And and this book was so vivid. It was so well illustrated and so emotional in the words that they used to describe the illustrations and the, and the portraits and the pictures of, of a daily life of a slave that it started a war <laughs> it started a war a war with brother against brother cousins against cousins and it was the bloodiest war on American soil and it was the Civil War and I believe that the Civil War that was fought between I think it was 1861 to 1865 something like that this war that was fought somehow because of historians and history and people not knowing their history I feel like we're in a quagmire we're, we're in a seeking sand and, and the young people could potentially be led to a pull to a place where we have to redo this thing all over again for the lack of knowledge and so we need pillars we need pillars we need people like Carl Berry we need people like Buddy Thorne we need people like Dr. Larry Davis we need people like Latane Phillips we, we need people like Dr. Isaac Carrier we need people like Anika Jones we need people like Dr. Teresa Poussaint we need pillars we need pillars in the community to be that post of history to be that oracle where the young people can go to and sit underneath that tree and, and eat those apples of wisdom so that they can gain those vitamins that they so desperately need we, 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 we need this the world was designed this way the old was always supposed to teach the young not the young teach the old but with technology in the mix it's almost like everything's been flipped upside down anyway 
You pulled that out of me. You pulled it out of me. Let's talk about trauma. Let's talk about diversity. Let's talk about people being treated equally. Let's talk about developing skills associated with their success in and outside of the community. The panel is open. Do we have enough resources to make this happen? Uh, we have people in office, we have people in the community, but are those resources, are those resources enough? Do, do, is there enough resources in, in, in the pot for us to make this thing work, to make this thing better? That's my next question. Who wants to take that? I think I'll... Uh, you hit the, the R word and the thing that I'm going to say and then I'll give it to Buddy but the thing that I'm going to say is yes we've got enough resources but you talked about the knowledge and the knowledge has to come from the low hanging fruit that is standing outside of the silos Buddy's talking about the problem is still the silos I'm going to say this on Black History tie-in and I'm going to turn it back to Buddy in 1950, they came out with a movie called The Klansman that the president and the Senate decided to change the name to Birth of a Nation. Why did they do that? Well, they said the slaves were free, but the South was suffering financially. And so they started arresting black people for vagrancy and jaywalking because once they were in jail, they could give the South free labor. And what I'm saying is just this. Racism sexism and all unsavory type of moral disdain is not the result of immoral people it's the result of money and as long as we're trying to fight immoral intent we're ignoring the problem the reason they birth of a nation and they said that black people were uh, they were rapists they were murderers and they were trying to have sex with white women and they did that to use the buddy's uh, word they did that to generate fear and so it wasn't that they were evil people they just got convinced that the only way we're going to protect ourselves is fear war on drugs 19 percent of the drug dealers in the last hundred years were black but they were the black people in jail were 67 percent of the population because they did not go after the people that were in cahoots with government and law officials because they'd lose their job so they arrested the black drug dealers put 67 percent of them in jail but they left the 80 percent of the people that were not black selling drugs to continue to do business was it because of evil it's always the cause of money and if we don't look at the source of our problem as money we're never going to get to the solution wow Ooh, distribution nice. of resources always distribution of resources is always going to be the issue not whether we have enough resources you know the entire planet is in a scarcity environment and we understand that but in the United States, there is no excuse for anyone to ever say that scarcity should be an issue. And there is absolutely a huge truism to the fact that people will make fear their number one tool 
that was the tool that was used in the early part of the 19th century. It was in the late part of the 19th century. It was throughout the 20th century. And now uh, certain groups, uh, political groups, have used fear and fear-mongering and hyperbole as their weapon of choice. But that doesn't address the entire issue. We do have the resources, we do not have the knowledge base, and we do not have the people who I would define as positive social change agents, people who are willing to get out there and get on their soapbox and get in the trenches and do whatever it takes to make change happen and to call things what they are. You know, uh, when you gave me this topic, I went back, one of my Bibles of behavior, it's called The Building of a Trauma-Informed Restorative School. It's written in 2020 by Joe Brummer. And then I went and I did some more research. And out of the first 20 articles that I looked at, the first word that any of them claimed was important was exactly what we've been talking about, mindfulness. And the second part was honest expression. And how much honesty do we have? And the honesty factor, or the lack thereof, is the reason why the ample resources are being distributed improperly, creating inequity, creating false situations where people are looking at and seeing that people over there are doing really well. People over here aren't doing so well. What's wrong with this picture? And the government is just saying, no, we got to make our base happy. We don't care what they do. And the other side says, I got to make my base happy. So I don't care what they do. And nobody's addressing the actual problem. So we have to understand if experts and article after article after article say mindfulness and honesty, honest expression, being able to speak the uncomfortable truth has to be the biggest watchword. Out of all the classes that I teach, my most popular classes called TC Squared, Tough Conversations and Tough Choices, which is absolutely hyper-focused on getting people to understand that if you're talking about things you're comfortable with, you're wasting your time, get out there and talk about the things that make you highly uncomfortable and look for solutions together. That's what's important. Okay, listen, this is beyond rich. This is ugly. This is like a cake that has so much. This is like a double, triple dutch fudge cake that's so loaded with chocolate. It's beyond rich. It's just, it's it's good, but it's so sweet. You can't you can only eat one bite without getting diabetes. <laughs> All right, buddy, I'm I'm coming your way, and I'm about to. This question I'm about to ask you, and I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I know this is going to knock you into the popcorn section. The question is, how will you come out? All right. So with that being said, in education, gender intersects with race in higher education like this. 86% of administrators are white, while only 7% percent are black two percent are asian three percent are hispanic or latino okay and and the numbers dwindle even more in higher ed like college and post graduate levels what would you tell 
a school administrator about de-escalating mental breakdowns with a student from a different race. And how you tell them this in a way that it helps them to understand how self-regulation leads to safety. That's my question for you, sir. What's your thoughts? Well, the first thing you have to do is get the administrator to admit that there is a uh, extreme imbalance in the uh, control dynamic, but that's a topic for another podcast. But here's what I would start with. I would ask them, how many of their students have they literally sat down with to try to get to understand their origin story? Because the biggest barrier to the administrators and the people above the schools understanding what needs to happen in the schools is they do not have any clue about most of their students' origin stories and what exactly happens in their environment, in those silos, because they're, they're forced to stay in their silos. And then I would suggest to the administrators, number one, you need to focus on UPR, universal positive regard has to be the watchword. There is no such thing as unequal. And you have to do that by insisting that you're going to have a safe haven effect in the school where you focus every day in every situation and with every fiber saying that there is value in your existence. There is value in being. You do not have to be perfect. You are still good enough. We love you. We want you here. We want to see you progress. And that's not what happens. And I would tell the school administrator that right to their face. If you want to de-escalate mental breakdowns, you've got to stop shutting kids down. You've got to stop forcing compliance on them. Now, a small amount of compliance is fine because kids actually crave boundaries. They want boundaries. But if you force them to comply without consulting them or letting them have a seat at the table, you increase trauma multifold. You're just really, you're just piling on and making a problem worse and worse and worse. You have to get the kids to co-create the culture within the school. Yes, the parents should have a part of that. They should also be at the table. But the kids themselves are the future of our society. And if we can't then let them co-create their environment and feel safe within it, they're never going to learn anything. Because a kid is not going to learn from you unless they trust you and they know that you are going to keep them safe, that you care about them. And then I would line it up like this. I say, here's the steps. You start with positive self-talk and you create a mindset. You find the good instead of the bad because every time you find the good, people you trigger endorphins and you make people feel good and that does diffuse out within the group. You teach choice dynamics in every class that you want to learn this, not you have to learn this. You want them to understand that they can't control what other people do, but they certainly are responsible for what they do. So they need to buckle up and say, okay, it's all on me. I'm going to learn it. The teachers are a resource. The administrators are a resource. The counselors are a resource. I am the active party here. And the administrators need to support that. They need to support feedback cycles. When a child has a question or a problem, they need to stop the process long enough to get that answered. And they need every child to understand that failure is not in the vocabulary. You either succeed and move on, or you learn from whatever created the problem, but you don't fail. The only way you fail is to walk 
count the door and not come back. If you quit, you fail. Other than that, we are going to invest every bit of our fiber in making you what you should be. We're going to support your positive habits. We're going to tell you when you have negative habits, and we're going to show you how to break down those negative habits. We're going to kick the ego out of the room. We're going to spend 30 seconds on celebrating, and we're going to spend 30 seconds maybe on ruminating why we may have lost. But then we're going to stand up and say, hey, what's next? What can we conquer next? Because if you've built that mindset, if you've really created a situation where these kids believe they're co-creating their future, their entire mindset should be, no barrier can hold me back. And then you turn SWAT on its head. You view weaknesses as opportunities, you view threats as a change motivator, and you say, if you believe something is truly a threat, share it with the group, because within the group, someone is going to have an answer. Someone is going to have some way to help you get beyond the threat that you face. And then, finally, we address the bullies and we address the people who are just, they're absolutely focused on creating a problem in the schools. We force all of those people who are defined as antisocial personality disorder sufferers, we bring them out into the open. We make sure they understand they can't hide from anybody. They're either going to change the way they believe and the way they think, or they're going to be set out apart and they're not going to be allowed to hurt the other kids. I believe that every school should have this sign on their door. Your past and your origin story does not dictate your outcome. Your choices and the follow through, depending on your effort, dictates the potential for your success. That's what needs to happen. And these school administrators either need to buy in on this or they need to get out of the way, retire, and let other people who will buy in on it get up and start leading the charge. I feel like the bad guy. I feel like the bad guy. I mean, I knocked you into the popcorn section and you came out like like Superman or somebody. Listen, what are the takeaways? We, were, we are out of time. Audience, listen, family, I'm going to call you family. I'm not even call you audience. I'm going to call you family because you're family. But panelists, what were the takeaways for tonight? What's the takeaways? Who wants to go first? Because this was wow. Who wants to go first? Well, for me, the takeaways were simple. It's uh, about awareness about acknowledging it's about the low hanging fruit it's about uh, telling people what to expect it's about uh, oneness, it's about unity it's about PC square <laughs> it's about uh, crucial conversation transparency honest confrontive conversation it's about being frank and not necessarily being popular. That's all I got. You did your research on this podcast, sir. Okay. What was your takeaways? Well, you know, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to top that, but I will add to it. And I, my biggest thing is that until people can get over believing that there's only one way to solve a problem until they 
learned that this is a collective problem and that no matter how you feel about what other people think, right or wrong, they have a right to their opinion. And so instead of sitting in your silos and patting each other in the back and saying, yeah, we'll find a way to shut them down and we won't let them hurt us, everybody ought to come out and say, how are we going to build one giant bowl where everybody gets to be mixed into the salad. We get to literally learn from each other. We get to grow with each other. We get to suffer with each other. You've got to have those tough conversations. You know what? If you don't bleed just a little bit when you have a conversation, and I mean that figuratively, not, not actually, but if you don't feel like you're being traumatized a little bit to make you get off your non-stress point, your comfort zone, you're not going to make progress. Society is going to keep just spinning its wheels. We're going we're to stay right where we're at. Let's have purposeful stress channeled into meaningful but difficult conversations. And let's let the most brightest minds from every generation, from the kids that we love all the way to the octogenarians. And I'm not quite there yet, but boy, I'm getting close. You know, we everybody needs to have a voice in this because humanity needs a solution instead of the politics and the, nope, we need to leave this problem here because it's a good talking point. It'll help me get reelected in four years. That's got to go away. We have to literally say, we are going to take charge. If the government's not going to take charge, we are going to take charge. We are going to fix this problem. That's what's got to happen. The impact of educational leadership podcast. Facebook, 